I'm Maria Bustillos, a contributor to CJR. The latest issue of the magazine asks the question, what is journalism? Today, we're looking for answers by considering what we have left in the face of all that undermines journalism, from attacks by elected officials to misinformation swirling around social media. With trust in the press at an all-time low, how do we work through an atmosphere of profound skepticism in the nature of truth itself? To explore these questions, I was recently joined by two leading scholars in the field of online extremism, media manipulation, and disinformation campaigns to discuss the post-truth society of our time. Dr. Joan Donovan is the research director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard. Dr. Claire Wardle is the co-founder and director of First Draft, the world's foremost nonprofit focused on research and practice to address myths and disinformation. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. So we're talking about post-truth. And both of you have uh, done a lot of work on misinformation and disinformation. And in the wake of January 6th, I thought that would be kind of the best place to begin. What do you make of the current climate with respect to the lies that are being told to the public, why and how those lies are being told and how your work plays into and, and is going to proceed uh, after uh, January 6th. So uh, how do we proceed after January 6th, I think is really going to have a lot to do with the way in which technologists respond. But I've also written about this problem with Claire uh, that misinformation is everybody's problem now. So technology companies have, of course, removed numbers of accounts. Uh, the the week after January 6th is going to, you know, really uh, be a momentous one in terms of internet histories where we're going to have to tell the story of that moment time and time again. And we're not going to have a full understanding of what its impact was because I don't think these companies are actually going to be transparent about what they have done. But how that impacts truth is actually pretty interesting in the sense that I think you don't get a massive deplatforming like that without people who do care about access to accurate information. And what misinformation has been able to do over the last several years is um, sort of chip by chip erode the foundations by which we make truth happen as a society. And so I don't, while I do think that technology companies are going to play a role in uh, how the world, of course, carries on and moves on from this moment, I think there's a, a much bigger role to be played by other truth-telling institutions like our journalists, our civil society organizers, our librarians, our educators, uh, anybody whose work has been incredibly disrupted by tech companies um, insisting that scale at any cost 
was a was an appropriate price to pay for our democracy. We've already been thrown into a, a state of turmoil about like what constitutes the truth and what doesn't. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot is like Marshall McLuhan's view of kind of uh, rhetoric taking the place of logic in the modern age. Um, and I think we're kind of facing that where the, uh, the, the, the proceedings of persuasion, you know, the act of persuasion is, is completely at the throat of reason and logic. And it's almost like there's a partisan divide there. Claire, I know that that is a big focus of your work. Like, what does truth mean now? And do you see a difference between this moment, you know, in February uh, compared to December or October of last year? Yeah, I mean, with Joan, as people who've studied this for a long time, I think, you know, we, we would be at conferences and say, well, if we don't get, you know, things in order, we're going to be in trouble in five years. And as I watched the events at the Capitol, I was like, yep, that got squashed to two months. Um, but I, I mean, I think this phrase post-truth, I struggle with a little bit because on one hand, you know, the fact that we had so many videos from the Capitol, we have more evidence now than we ever did. We have more voices than we ever did. In some, you know, on some issues, we know more than we ever have done. But what we're seeing now is, I talk about these kind of these two information ecosystems. The one that we live in is the traditional one in that there's gatekeepers that we trust. It's hierarchical, it's linear. Um, and in some ways, I could argue that it's somewhat traditional in that there's this kind of passive idea that people at the bottom are going to receive these messages and be persuaded. When actually the the other ecosystem, which is the one that people were spending the last three months in completely believing the big lie. And that is a participatory ecosystem where people are told that they can play a role in finding out the truth, that they can find clues to the puzzle. They were looking for, you know, from November 3rd onwards for evidence of a fraudulent vote. And that mm. is a participatory ecosystem. It is not hierarchical. It is, you know, information ricochets around and you see something on Gateway Pundit, then you hear the president say it, then you see hear your elected representative, then you hear your golf buddies talking about it in your Facebook group. It it looks very different. And so I think for me it's understanding that and 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 saying what how can those of us who live in the kind of traditional ecosystem learn lessons? Because ultimately, to your point, Unfortunately, researchers, journalists, fact checkers, we all like to think that people have a rational relationship to information, but we don't. As humans, we have an emotional one. It doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum. It doesn't really matter how educated you are. All of us are humans. I mean, gorillas and apes, they connect with each other by picking um, kind of uh, bugs off each other's fur. We don't have that as humans. So we gossip like we have always been drawn to information that makes us feel a certain way. And in an age where there were very strong gatekeepers and, you know, Walter Cronkite, et cetera, et cetera, we didn't have the choice to seek out information that felt us feel, made us feel a certain way. And now the internet allows us to seek out and feel certain things. And so as humans, we're seeking out that information that makes us feel good. And that's that's what's going on here. And it's having huge implications. But the idea that we can just add more facts back into the ecosystem, that behavior has changed now. And so we need to work within the constructs that we have. Um, and that's why this moment is so important, but also so terrifying. 
this is fascinating to me because, you know, the whole idea of surveillance, right, where regular people are able to record everything that was happening in the capital during the siege. So this is this, this sort of avalanche of information that people are able to look at. I found it actually quite interesting that nobody has accused, you know, n- nobody uh, in the sort of conspiracy theory land or the QAnons or whatever, none of those people has accused these videos of being false or confected or fake news. I, this is a this is a phrase I haven't heard with respect to these recordings. Like, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, the many times in news events, um, there is only certain people that are holding a camera. But at, at those events, you had the people who were live streaming, but you also had the AP photographers. And, you know, so in many ways, they couldn't say that it was faked. And there was just so much information. But it, it is interesting that, I mean, we did see different narratives around the siege, you know, the idea that it was Antifa. But you're right, nobody was able to connect what they were seeing on that video to those claims. But those claims did exist, that you know, and they did take hold in those communities. But I'm sure Joan's got more to add. Well, so years ago, I was writing about social movements and live streaming. And one of the things that I was really drawn into was this idea of social surveillance, where the same technologies that we were using in the, in the streets for the Occupy movement were then also being, you know, turned into news stories. And it was obvious the cops had been watching some of them because they would come out into the park and call people by their first names, you know, as a way to jar you, right? As a way to get you to notice them noticing you. And through it all, I was thinking about, well, what are we doing uh, in 2011, putting our faces and our, our politics on the line? Is it Uh, a way to draw more people in, which it certainly was. Occupy events swelled to tens of thousands in some cities on the weekends, and people were excited and using social media and posting selfies and live streams. But the, the more sinister sort of dark side of surveillance or, uh, social surveillance is, uh, this, momentary capture can then be used as evidence of other things. Um, And so activists had started to adopt recording practices and ways of documenting movements and and publicity all at the same time, also knowing that you had to be pretty cautious about what could get clipped and re-aired and and, and turned against you as you were doing uh, civil disobedience. I, I don't mean to confuse that, though, with what happened uh, with the capital, uh, the capital insurrection, because in that moment, people were filming themselves committing crimes, but also were behaving as if they were in a movie about people committing crimes, right? There was this weird sort of simulacra going on, a simulation of a protest in and of itself where they were just completely unaware of the stakes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that this moment, though, cinematically, like in terms of the way we tell media histories, um, there is some truth in the footage and in the posts, but there also there's also a lot of missing context. And as a result of that, I, I, I don't want to delude us into thinking, oh, we have pictures of this and therefore it must be true because as Claire was saying the manipulators are very good at inserting 
uh, you know, false information into those moments when you are searching for things that are accurate. And, and when I talk about the truth, I'm, I'm, I'd like to like, just turn down the heat on it a bit and just say, you know, I, what I'm referring to is timely, local, relevant, and accurate information, which we all need, uh, as a society to survive. I think that, uh, the, the layered narratives that, you know, people are imposing on these recordings afterwards are like infinitely fascinating. The chaotic element seemed to be there to give cover to a more um, sinister and planned out effort. What, what do you think about that, Claire? I mean, I think that was what I found so shocking. I mean, I definitely went to bed the night before and actually texted a friend and said, I'm going to bed early. I've got a really bad feeling about tomorrow. And, you know, I, I thought there might be some trouble, but I think what I didn't expect was the different groups of people that we saw on the mall. So, yes, we saw the extremists, the white supremacists. Then we saw the QAnon people. But then we kind of saw the like dads in golf shirts and the grandmas. And the, I mean, that was to me the thing that rocked me so deeply was how many people believe the big lie. And so I think as we're figuring out what happened on that day, as, as Joan said, there was there were people that crossed the barrier and broke down the windows. But I think there were other people like, oh, oh this wasn't what I had planned. You know, I, and we're still at the, I think, the very early stages of really understanding everything that's being gathered now about the event. It, we, we feel like we know a lot, but I, I feel that we don't. And I think the one thing we do know is that there were many, many, many people who were in DC on that day brought together by the big lie, but how much they were prepared to cross certain lines and boundaries. Um, I think that's why we can't talk about, you know, there being one reason or one explanation. But I do think when we think about the wider context of what this means for society, that that was what was deeply shocking. I expected the militia guys and the white supremacists to get up to terrible things. I didn't expect so many people who I was like, oh, okay, we, you know, the anger on people's faces the real belief that the election had been stolen. that That's the thing that was, you know, whatever. It's not a competition for what was most chilling, but that, that I think the implications of that are going to be with us for a very, very long time. Well, I would like to pivot from, from this insight, which, I mean, both of you are, you know, have, have uh, articulated really brilliantly to reality television, because I kind of think that like the media aspect of the entire Trump presidency which has been discussed, you know, at infinitum, really found its apotheosis in that moment. Because there were all these people who loved the idea of the drama, you know, they were listening to Rush Limbaugh, they're listening to Glenn Beck, they're listening to Hannity, they're listening to Tucker Carlson, all these people who are juicing their ratings with what was essentially a, um, like a, like a play, like a TV show, you know, about, this complete myth and fantasy, like ordinary people we think of as needing proof to believe a thing. Like, you know, why do you think the election was stolen? Who are these people who voted? Who are these dead people who turn out to be alive, you know, and so on. And, and yet still go all the way to Washington. And I really think that the whole thing germinated, you know, sort of with The Apprentice. And, you know, the idea that you would believe that the failed casino operator, you know, is this somehow genius businessman and kind of the idea that you're watching TV, right? As a, a symbol of, like you're, like you said earlier, a simulacrum 
you know, it's very Baudrillardian. Um, so when I think about how people arrived in DC, I think about actually my own media practices as a researcher. Uh, if you think back to November 3rd, there was a lot of open speculation about who had won the election. The races were close. There was a lot of commentary online, but there were a few people driving a very specific narrative. These people are political pundits, insiders that were already ginning up the works for this Stop the Steal. They had laid the foundation for it, seeded it around the internet so that there was already like pre-content. But then like if you just narrow your focus down to someone like Giuliani, he had a steady drumbeat of content across every platform every day that were updates on 60-some-odd court cases, all of which he managed to frame as they, whoever they are, the deep state, whoever, the Dems, are working against Trump. Look, we have 60 court cases out there and nothing is happening. Why are they refusing to look at the evidence? And then if you actually read all of the errata of the court cases, it's because there is no evidence. However, the, the look and feel of legislation, which is off-putting uh, to most of us, actually feels like evidence, but many of us are never going to bother to read it. On YouTube, once you had looked into videos about voter fraud or watched Giuliani, the reinforcement algorithms just kind of wrapped you in a surround sound of suspicion, of suspense. So by the time you get to January 6th, if you are watching this right-wing media ecosystem that's happening on your television where they're telling you to switch to Newsmax and OAN, uh, it's happening in print if you're reading the New York Post, it's happening everywhere that you look, so that redundancy is built in as well. But what's important, I think, about that moment is by the time you get to January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, it feels as if every legal avenue to stopping the steal and avenging Trump and getting democracy back has expired. And the only thing left is for you to step in. This is not unlike the feeling that most of us have when there is a immense you know, public wrong where we feel like the only thing we can do is show up in public and rattle the cages of, you know, the bureaucrats and and the police and say no more. However, like it was entirely engineered by political elites, which is why it's so important that we have a vibrant uh, media ecosystem that includes a kind of check and balance so that, uh, you know, fascists and, and authoritarians don't step in and be able to control both the media narrative and, you know, the, the, the way in which, you know, they're their followers or their constituents are are told to behave. And so I think it's, you know, years of social media pretending as if scale wasn't going to have this massive vulnerability built into it that that is when someone with huge networks wanted to uh, cause a riot that they could. The other the last thing I'll say is what Marjorie Taylor Greene said 
I was allowed to believe, right? Mm. People expect media gatekeepers to exist. And so if you're not doing the work of, of uh, helping people understand the, the media and the posts that they're, you know, ingesting and the, and the content that they're watching, then you are, you are failing them as an audience. And so I think it's important for us to understand those dynamics. This is what was, this made my wiglet blow clean into orbit. You know, I was allowed to believe, I mean, these are the same people who have been calling people like me, like fake news, right? Like, for four years or six years or, you know, since the Reagan era. And yet they are constantly empowering us. It's like constantly like, you know, the media, looking to the media, constantly invoking the New York Times, constantly like, you know, talking about um, the the narratives that uh, news professionals are putting out, like in preference to their own propaganda. It's just ridiculous. No, exactly to Joan's point is that that, I mean, you you asked the question about reality TV. I mean, this was many people's reality. As I said, everywhere they turned from their elected officials to the news that they were consuming to their Facebook group communities they were spending time in, they weren't getting both sides and making a decision to believe that the election was rigged. Everywhere they looked, people were saying, point blank, no doubt it was stolen day after day after day. And as I said, they were asked themselves to find evidence. So they were scouring the internet looking for examples of this too. They felt like they had agency. And so for all of those reasons, I don't know how we get back. I mean, obviously the platforms have played a catastrophic role in this and there's lots that they can do. But if they changed everything tomorrow, what do you do when you have a very large number of people in Congress still spouting the idea that the election was stolen, as well as not just Fox, but now Newsmax and OAN, as well as hyperpartisan ecosystem and talk radio. I mean, this is significant. And obviously, I'm British. And so, um, and it's not that the BBC is perfect, but I really in this country to see such a fragmented information environment where just there is no shared space, that, that, that for me is what's so distressing is that it doesn't make it easier when you have societies that are becoming more polarised. And certainly in the UK, Brexit has done all sorts of damage in the UK and the BBC wasn't able to stop that. But seeing where we need to go over the next few years, and as as Joan said, this is something that's going to have to be tackled by the platforms and by elected officials and by educators and by librarians and by civil society. I mean, there is no quick fix for this at all. There's like, there's some funny irony about it though. Like, you know, some of them in some of the videos actually believe that Trump, once they did this for Trump, he would pardon them. And of course, once you start to actually realize what happened here, the only person that was doing it for a pardon was Bannon, who was also part of the networks that were pumping out this disinformation about the, you know, the communist algorithms, hammer and scorecard that had flipped the, you know, the voting machines. And so uh, it's really important to understand that, like, just from the point of view of the the actors, is that there were some that were doing it out of self interest, and other ones that were doing it or or really being compelled to do it because they thought um, that democracy was imperiled, and and that's something that's an effect of a kind of nationalism that 
different countries have become very susceptible to through social media. And we're starting to see more and more um, leaders become elected on nationalist platforms, uh, political platforms, I should say. Uh, and to me, that's like very concerning as we start to think about, well, where else can and will this happen? I don't think we should discount the fact that Fox is suddenly the third place network. I think there are there's some evidence, right? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that people are starting to see the man behind the curtain at this point. Because, I mean, you know, during the impeachment proceedings, the Trump camp is arguing both that he is still president, right? Because the election was fraudulent and that he can't be impeached because he's no longer president. So it's like the, the kind of rubber has hit the road here. If Fox is losing ground and if Republicans are leaving the party in greater numbers, then there's a certain amount of, of party switch that takes place after each election. There's ample evidence at this point that the Republicans are hemorrhaging registrations in the wake of this election and in the wake of January 6th. And, you know, Rachel Maddow is the number one TV show, like a cable news show. So there's some evidence that, that there, there are cracks in this foundation. I mean, certainly, I mean, I think of those numbers taking seriously the people who've now gone to Newsmax and OAN is what we need to do. But I, I think you're right. I mean, it will be very surprising to me if there's not some kind of fracturing of the Republican Party. Maybe not. Maybe there will be a healing. But um, to me, to have the extremists at one one end and then the centrist base, like this can't be my party going forward, you know, whether... Trump will come out of this. I mean, you know, he's in Mar-a-Lago. He's, you know, as the reporters keep telling us, he's in a foul mood. Um, but the question is, you know, where is he going to go next? Is he going to start his own social network? Is he going to start his own media empire? Um, I, I just think there's so much. We're going to look back and be like, wow, you know, in February, we thought we knew so much. Well, you know, I watch a lot of Fox News. I watch pretty much the sort of 8 and 11 uh, block and they are expanding the 11 p.m. hour now to Gutfield, so they're going to have more opinion content uh, in the in the evening hours. But you know, it was interesting to watch them during the election because I don't think they really knew how to manage what had happened, which is essentially that they're you know the news desk that makes the decisions about election calls. They're their call on Arizona was much earlier than MSNBC and CNN. And in that moment, Newsmax, OAN, a bunch of other online shows on YouTube really called them out for that and said, see, even Fox News is, is part of the problem. And, and even CNN hasn't called Arizona. And there was this, you know, moment when Trump had tried to switch the levers and get Fox to, to walk it back. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the big lessons here is about opinion versus news, which mm. is the opinions part are so uh, kind of massaged uh, to look like news that you think you're watching news when you're really watching opinion shows. And But when it came to the news desk and the call about Arizona for Fox, that was a hard line that the opinion uh, part of the operation couldn't walk back, um, you know, and we saw other fissures within the Republican 
party plus the Republican partisan press uh, that didn't weren't able to reconcile with one another without insisting that, well, we'll just move over here where party over uh, truth is is, you know, the order of the day. The the my pillow uh, debacle was really fantastic in that regard. Well, that Newsmax clip in particular of the Mike Lindell story, where he wanted to do what he does, which is get on news and say this this horrible thing happened when they wouldn't let him do that. Not many people know this, but he made like a three hour long documentary that he tried to upload to YouTube, where it's him and a PowerPoint and like a lot of like hand movements where he's trying to explain everything. And it is, it's delusional. Um, But I will say we downloaded it. We put it on our Google drive so that we could watch it later as a team. And Google's flagged it and actually removed it from our research drive. So uh, luckily we have it on a hard drive. But yeah, there's these, the mitigation efforts are bizarre and they're too far reaching and they're not tailored to the actual product. I mean, we pay for Google Drive. So for them to flag and remove the content uh, is, I mean, maybe I should sue. What do you think, Claire? You know a good lawyer? (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, it's so in terms of what content moderation looks like now, um, I mean, the, the idea that they're moderating people's Google Drive. I mean, there's a lot to be angry about, but <laughs> that's really aggressive. It's okay. I back up everything. <laughs> you can't catch me. You can't you can't take you can't take my evidence away. That's for sure. Wowzers, though, that is so aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. My team is like, what are we going to do? We were going to watch that later. <laughs> some like fun. you can take the night off <laughs> yeah oh yeah. yeah no this job is hell <laughs> yeah but and um, i would i would love to say something um about the role of the mainstream media because we we're actually about to publish some research about the ways that fox cnn and msnbc basically took trump's tweets about the election being rigged before november 3rd and afterwards and basically blew them up on screen And it was like 32 hours of footage of the times that the tweets were up on screen. I mean, this isn't just the times people talked about what Trump said. It's those networks pushing it. And I just I think as we go back and do a postmortem about this, you know, Trump was, as we know, the master media manipulator. But thinking about the ways that his lies were amplified by the mainstream media throughout 2020. And, you know, the Twitter didn't start adding labels like all the way through the summer. This stuff was being you know, pumped out almost on a daily basis by Trump. Um, and so I, I think there's so much to learn about, you know, what Trump did, how all outlets, you know, yes, we've been talking about Fox OAN and et cetera, but, you know, what what was the role of the TV networks in particular in forwarding, you know, and amplifying and giving oxygen to this lie? So there's just so many elements of the last few months that we need to really look at critically and understand everybody's role in it. When we talk about lies when we talk about truth we are creating a reality like right now for people who are listening you know when any narrative like creates some kind of like a um a reality that people can inhabit a rhetorical structure like an ethical structure and a syntactic structure like all this like how should media think moving forward about the question of oxygen 
Yeah, I've, I've written a lot about this, and it's something that Claire and I came together on very early about thinking about, well, if we're not going to be able to stave off the problems presented by platforms in terms of circumvention and how else do we help other other uh, truth-telling institutions handle this problem? And so Claire and I both have, you know, been to news outlets, media organizations, training journalists, uh, with Whitney Phillips as well, who wrote a, a spectacular report at Data and Society um, when I was there. I was the media manipulation lead about this very question about and she did a deep dive on like how the alt-right probably never would have become as big of a thing as it did without the media attention to it and treating it as if it was not uh, a white supremacist or a white power movement. And so I think for Claire and I, one of the things that we want to do in the future is to help other um, sectors understand misinformation at scale and and what role they can play in protecting their communities um, rather than simply trying to keep shining a light on these platforms who are completely uh, unable to understand what they have built nor value the help that we have offered. Um, And so thinking through this problem of where do we go from here and how do we not allow manipulators to take up so much space in our, you know, live rent free inside our heads in many ways. I think it's going to take journalists especially uh, to have a very cunning hand and a careful eye for how they're shaping stories. But the way they need to do it though, is they actually need to shape the impact stories and the narratives and help, all of those other folks that are trying to do the good work of spreading timely, local, relevant, and accurate information, uh, they're going to have to do, you know, they're going to have to turn their lens and their and their pens to those people and help them get the word out. Because ultimately, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, this notion of it bleeds, it leads and whatnot, and and we've seen it time and time again that the this, it's our our platforms have been tilted to give an advantage to disinformers and it's only you know since uh you know the past few months that they've started to realize that how how bad it's getting uh and i think they're starting to feel the heat that maybe they might be held responsible with this change in the political administration yeah i mean the other day, um, uh, a BBC news outlet actually put a tweet out that said, you might have heard about vaccines causing infertility. Will you be getting vaccinated? And underneath, there was just all of these conspiracy theorists saying why they wouldn't get vaccinated. And I spoke to somebody at the BBC and I said, like, you know, I can see why you did this, but look at how you've been manipulated. And she said something that's really stuck with me. She's like, you're right. I keep thinking we're using the same storytelling methods that worked 30 years ago, but it doesn't now because we're being used and it, I mean, it's a very simple response, but this is hard. Like, it's very difficult for, you know, editors to make these kind of real time decisions and to think about what to cover. And the idea of not covering something makes lots of journalists feel very, very uncomfortable and for good reason. But the more that we do training around, look at the ways that you are being used and manipulated, um, then there's this idea of, oh, oh, you're right. You know, j- just shining a light isn't necessarily going to get us the results that we want. 
asking the tough questions isn't necessarily going to get the results that we want. So it's it's a it's a learning process. And I think the US media in particular has really learned a lot of lessons over the last three years. But just recently in Australia, there was a really problematic documentary where they were interviewing a white supremacist. And I was like, oh, I mean, it, but you kind of have to learn and recognize uh, what that kind of coverage can do as, as witness research showed. But um, yeah, it's, it's tough being a journalist in 2021.